We'll be reading the entirety of Acts chapter 25. Now when Festus was come into the province, after three days he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself would depart shortly thither. Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. And when he had tarried among them more than ten days, he went down unto Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought forth. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended anything at all. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof they can accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar thou shalt go. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix, about whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. To whom, I, to whom I answered, it is, not, it is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die, before that he which is accused to have the accusers face to face, and have license to answer for him concerning the crime laid against him. Therefore, when they were come thither, without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat, and commanded the man to be brought forth, against whom, when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation of such things I, as I supposed. But the certain questions against, of, against him of their own superstition, and of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judge of these matters. But when Paul had appealed to, the, to be received unto the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept until I might send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa, Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, Bernice, and Bernice with great pomp, and was entered into the, palace, into the place of hearing, with the chief captains and the principal men of the city, at Festus' commands, com, commandment, Paul was brought forth. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all men which are here present with us, ye see this man, about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying out that he ought not live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself hath appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore, I have brought him forth before you, and specially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had I might have something to write. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner, and not withal with to signify the crimes laid against him. Maybe seated. Before we enter into the word this morning, I ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you today looking for counsel, looking for understanding. And Father, we pray that you would grant us through your word this morning wisdom and discernment that we may please you with our lives. As your children, I pray that you would help us to counsel others according to the truth of your word. And then when we are the ones seeking counsel, Lord, I pray that we would show discernment with our selections. And I pray that we would take what we receive and always... 
be quick to check it against the truth of your word. Your counsel stands forever, Lord. It's what we read in your word. And I pray that your people here habitually look to you, to your word, and to your people for godly counsel. Thank you for another opportunity to open your word and study your word together. May we, as we mentioned earlier, Lord, I pray we would have ears to hear what your spirit desires to teach us this morning. May we listen, may we hear from you this morning through your word. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When you're in need of counsel, where do you turn? When you need wisdom to know how to navigate through a difficult situation, how do you proceed? Now, I think many of us here know the right answer to the questions I just asked. Most of us here would say, well, turn to Jesus, of course. Turn to the Word, of course. See, I'm convinced I'm talking to a group of people that know the right answer. My question is, in knowing the right answer, do you operate by faith when those times come and take what you know to be true from God's Word and actually do... The very things you know God's word says. So see, it's not just a matter of knowing the answer. It's like that little kindergarten. You heard that story, I'm sure. Where the teacher's asking the questions in the classroom. I love the story. You know, what's, what's, what's gray and bushy-tailed and gathers nuts in the fall? And the little, little, little she's raised her hand. She says, yeah. She says, well, it sounds a lot like a squirrel, but I know the answer must be Jesus. It's that whole idea that any of the questions have to be Jesus, right? So we get caught into this rut of it's got to be Jesus. Well, where to turn, I'm hoping everyone here knows we need to turn to Jesus. But even in knowing that we need to turn to Jesus, my question for you this morning is, do we operate that way? Remember, we're we're about connecting, and we must be about connecting what we know to be true from God's word with our lives. Uh, James puts it this way as we can't just be a hearer only, but be a what? Doer. Right? Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 says, trust in the Lord with just a little bit of your heart. All your heart. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Proverbs 21 verse 30 says that there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Well, what's that mean? Here's what it means. What the Lord says stands. His counsel stands supreme, always. In fact, that psalm we referenced a few weeks back, Psalm 33, verse 11, says that very same thing. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart, how many generations? All generations. If it's true that the counsel of the Lord stands forever... And the plans of his heart are extended to all generations. Why then do we oftentimes forfeit such great help in our times of need? If his counsel stands firm forever, listen, it's it's been going on long before you came on the scene. It's going on right now while you are on the scene. And when you're not on the scene, it's going to keep going on. His counsel stands firm forever. Why is it that we typically turn to man's best wisdom first? Listen, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. That's a long time, friends. Forever. His counsel endures to all generation. How many of you like coupons when you go shopping? Anybody? Is there, are there any coupon folks here? 
There was a, uh, I just made my own coupon. Obviously, it's not great. It's a three by five card. But I made my own coupon. And you can make your own coupon. I'll encourage you as an action step day to make your own coupon. I'm going to tell you even what to write on this coupon. Okay? Coupons, in case there are some here who may not know what coupons are. It's, you know, to say and repeat that word, it's, it's difficult to keep using that word. It, the more you say it, it, it seems like it loses its, its, its meaning. Coupon. Buy one, get one free. Right? You heard of that? You may have a piece of paper, a little slip, that's a buy one, get one free. So when I go and, and if I want to buy my wife a, a milkshake, right? See, I gave them this example. They didn't like that. Dad, what about us? No, it says buy one, get one free. That's my wife and me. That's just good. <laughs> buy one, get one free. There's also a coupon that might say, you know, a dollar off. You know, you, or if you buy X amount of groceries, you get $5 off, right? All kinds of different coupons out there. Well, as I was thinking about this and thinking about the text here this morning, I, I, I was drawn to write down this, this coupon. Here it is. It's, it's one of the best coupons you'll ever find. Okay? And here's why. You can use it perpetually. You know how at the bottom it usually has an expire date on it? This coupon we give you this morning never expires. Ever. It just keeps on going. You can keep on using it every day. And this coupon, I believe, is a reminder of your days here on earth. Every day... You can think about this. You can be drawn to this. You can use this. The coupon simply reads this. Come to me. Learn from me. Be counseled by me. And then in coupon fashion, I have an asterisk or fine print. You know, usually the fine print's a lot smaller because in that fine print, sometimes you find out that you really can't even use the coupon. Right? I mean, that's really what they mean down at the bottom. But this, my asterisk says, good to all generations. Good to all generations. I want each of you to realize that you've been given a coupon by the Lord. I don't think everyone here realizes what a deal they have available to them every day. Each day you can access this coupon with the Father in heaven. Access has been granted to you through the completed work of his son, Jesus, at the cross. Come to me, learn from me, be counseled by me. Good to all generations. Well, we left Paul last week, having been granted his appeal to Caesar. He's now being held as prisoner, waiting a convenient time by Festus to send him to the emperor in Rome. We pick it up in verse 13 this week. And the remainder of Acts 25 is the prelude surrounding Paul's testimony before King Agrippa II. In fact, we read verse 13. After some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Now we have a time reference here. After some days, some time has elapsed since Paul's appeal to Caesar. And some guests have arrived on the scene in Caesarea. King Agrippa and Bernice. Now, we need to understand that this King Agrippa in the text here is King Herod Agrippa II. He is the last in the line of the long Herod dynasty, right? Let me give you just some, I think, some important details to just to know about this Agrippa that we're speaking of in the text. Herod the Great, as he was known, Herod the Great had two wives. I'm going to give you a quick background on Herod. Agrippa, real quick, okay? Herod the Great had two wives. And he gave birth to Herod Antipas and Aristobulus. And through Aristobulus and his wife Berenice, Herod of Chalcis and Herod Agrippa I were born. And through Herod Agrippa I and his wife Cyprus were born Bernice, who we read about in the text today. Drusilla, who we read about previously, the wife of Felix. And Herod Agrippa II. Bernice was married to Herod of Chalcis for a time. Bernice was married to her uncle. 
but she spent the majority of her days living with her brother, Agrippa II, in what many historians agreed was an incestuous relationship. She had a marriage with King Polemon of Cilicia for a time before once again returning to her brother. And she even had stints as mistress with some of the other emperors. I, I say all this to give you some background on who these people are. So Herod Agrippa, standing before Paul in this chapter, is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Okay? Herod Agrippa, the one we're reading about right here, he's the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was around during the days of Jesus' birth. He's the one who ordered the killing of all the male children under two in Bethlehem. Herod Antipas would be Agrippa II's great uncle. He was the ruler who executed John the Baptist, who sought Jesus' life, and later tried Jesus in Luke chapter 23. So this, that was the Herod that Jesus stood before, Herod Antipas. Herod Agrippa I was the king who killed James with the sword in Acts chapter 12. It's the king who arrested Peter. This was also the king who died being eaten by worms. Remember that? And he died because he failed to give God glory, didn't he? It's thought that Herod Agrippa II is 32 years old here in the text. His sister Bernice is 31. And it's also estimated here in Acts 25 and 26 that Paul now is about 60 years of age. Okay? Some reference, some, some handles on some text issues here. The text says that Agrippa and Bernice spent many days in Caesarea. And it was during their lengthy stay that Festus approaches Agrippa with the news of Paul's case. Now Festus, in agreeing to Paul's appeal to Caesar, he's relieved himself of a great burden, and yet he's also, listen, he's also manufactured for himself a great problem. Before he can send Paul to the emperor, he must put in writing a reason for sending him. Okay? He must. It was, you had to. You couldn't send a prisoner who appealed without putting down why he's coming. I suppose you could, but you would probably lose your governorship. You probably wouldn't be in that position for very long. I imagine Festus spent a great deal of time trying to figure out how he would write something intelligently to the emperor. Because, you see, he had already admitted that what Paul did, he was innocent of charges deserving death. So what's he going to write? Enter Agrippa. And the Lord, I love how the Lord orchestrates all things. You can almost hear the sigh of relief from Festus upon the arrival of Agrippa. The king, you see, had oversight at this time of the temple, the Jewish temple. He also had been given charge to appoint the high priest. He has experience, Agrippa does, dealing with the Jews. He knows how they operate. And you almost hear the wheels turning with Festus in this particular part of the chapter. King Agrippa can assist me with what to write. I'll have him hear Paul's case, and since he's deemed an expert in Jewish affairs, he'll be able to fill in some blanks for me. Or so he thinks. See, Festus needs one of those coupons that I referenced earlier. Come to me, learn from me, be counseled by me. Good to all generations. This would have come in handy for Festus. Instead, he turns to a pagan king for counsel. Listen to how Festus summarizes Paul's case in verses 14 through 21. Just give you the, the summary points here as we walk through it. First of all, he says there's this certain man, doesn't even give his name here, a certain man, 
left a prisoner by Felix. He says, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews begged Festus for a judgment against the man. They wanted a judgment against him. Festus says, I told him that Roman rule dictates that a, that a, a man not be handed over to destruction until he has met his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to defend himself. He goes on and he tells Agrippa that in Caesarea not long ago I sat on the judgment seat and, and I heard the Jewish authorities issue their charges. And he tells Agrippa, he says, frankly I'm surprised at what they put forward. It wasn't what I expected. See, being in a Roman court, I was fully anticipating the charges to be of a criminal nature. But they weren't. And he goes on and he tells Agrippa, he says, instead they, they seem to have some questions about this prisoner concerning their own religion. And they mention a certain Jesus. Don't you love the way he just even brings out Jesus' name? This certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed he was still alive. Festus says, since I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether Paul was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these questions at hand. Notice he tells Agrippa, nothing of wanting to do the Jews a favor. Isn't it interesting how in some of these letters and some of these correspondence, we saw this with Lysias. I rescued him when I learned that he was a Roman. No, you didn't. You didn't know he was a Roman until you were about to scourge him. Certain details left out. Let me see this again here in his summary. And then he says, almost as though putting all of the blame, all of the weight, verse 21... But when Paul appealed, and it's Paul's fault, but when Paul appealed to Caesar for a decision, I commanded that he be kept until he could be sent to Rome. And so Agrippa responds in verse 22. I also would like to hear the man myself. Now, the, the way this sentence is rendered in the original language, uh, the, the word has in mind, I've been hoping, I've been wishing for quite a while that I could have a conversation with this man myself. It ought not surprise us that Agrippa knows of Paul. And Festus says, tomorrow you shall hear him. In fact, it's very similar to Herod Antipas in Luke 23, verse 8, when, remember, Pilate hands him over because of a jurisdiction matter. Pilate hands Jesus over to Herod. Remember that? And in chapter 23, verse 8 of Luke, it says, Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. Why? For he had desired for a long time to see him. Because he had heard many things about him. And he had hoped to see some miracle done by him. You see, Herod Antipas heard about Jesus. And, and almost in the same exact way, here we are years later... Paul is standing before another Herod. And this Herod wants to have an audience with this man, Paul, of whom he's heard much, I'm sure. So verses 23 through 27 then describe the events on the next day. Notice another time reference, the next day. Look at the text and take in the scene that's being described here. When Agrippa... And Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At Festus's command, Paul was brought in. This was showtime. That's what this was. I'm reminded of King Herod Agrippa I, who stood before the people of Tyre and Sidon in Acts chapter 12. Remember, he came dressed in his regal attire. Remember that? Agrippa II and Bernice entered the auditorium with great fanfare. Had there been a spotlight, it would have been shining upon them. The five leading commanders in the Caesarean cohort were present, along with the wealthy, the elite, the prominent, Men of the city. Picture them entering the auditorium. Luke's description 
of the fanfare and the pageantry is set in great contrast to Paul, who was brought in. No, no, look at that. He was brought in. Leads you to believe he didn't even have the freedom to walk in on his own. Picture Paul's attire. Picture his stature. He comes in after the glamour crowd has taken their respective seats. And then in comes Paul. I would have enjoyed seeing a video camera on Agrippa and the company with him as Paul entered into the auditorium. This is the man that all of you Jews are all so worried about? Him? Probably some of the same feelings back in the day when Jesus stood before Pilate, stood before the other dignitaries. Him? Paul was brought in. And who knows how soon that he was, he was briefed of his appearance. And legally, he probably didn't even have to appear. Since, remember, he'd already appealed to Caesar. He was going to Rome. But I love this about Paul. Paul wouldn't pass up an opportunity to speak the gospel to the king. In fact, in Acts 9.15, remember that word from the Lord to Ananias about the mission for Paul and what he was going to go through? The Lord says that he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 21, as he addresses some of the precursors of the end of the age, he says this in verses 12 through 15. Jesus says these words. He says, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. It's exactly what we're reading about right here. Next week in Acts 26, Paul's going to give his defense, which is what? His testimony. It's his testimony. Paul is going to give his testimony before kings. Jesus says, therefore, settle it in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And Paul, hasn't Paul already been the recipient of that mouth of wisdom, right? That he's given, the Lord has given him a mouth, given him wisdom already up to this point. Come to me, learn from me, be counseled by me, good to all generations. You know, I, I think in many ways the Apostle Paul has used this quite often. He's, he's drawn close to the Lord. He's been strengthened by the Lord. He's learned much from the Lord. When he's been in need of counsel and understanding, he's been able to turn to the Lord for his strength. Paul is a participant in the grand parade here. The scene is intended, I believe, to intimidate, to frighten him. Perhaps it's set up to show Paul who's in charge. To belittle him in the midst of his chains. I wonder if Paul in this moment was reminded of what he wrote to the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, Paul writes these words. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. Paul was being brought onto the grand stage set amidst the glamour of Agrippa and his constituents. And though he was chained, though he was escorted into the auditorium at Festus's command, we can be assured that Paul, being in Christ, was being led in triumph by God as he entered. He's not entering the room. 
Listen, he's not entering this room a defeated, discouraged prisoner, but instead a victorious, encouraged follower of Jesus. He wore chains and yet he was free in Christ. Come to me, learn from me, be counseled by me. You see, in Christ Jesus, we have great strength. In Christ Jesus, we already have victory. Once all the people have gathered, Festus begins speaking in verse 24. His comments through verse 27 are really introductory remarks, calling all of those gathered, and especially King Agrippa, to the pertinent details of Paul's case. Listen to what he says. You see this man about whom the whole assembly... He's just pointing out to Paul. He may be standing next to him or pointing at him as he speaks. You see this man about whom all the Jews... In Jerusalem, here in Caesarea, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But then he says, when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, that's a very important part to understand. Festus himself says, I found nothing in him deserving of death. And that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. So he summarizes on one hand the stance of the Jews and establishes then his own word about Paul. He hasn't done anything deserving of death. He also submits then the purpose of this gathering. He says in verse 26, I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa. You see, this hearing is for King Agrippa. It's for Agrippa to hear so that he might be able to help provide counsel for Festus so Festus can get himself out of the hole. So that after the examination's taken place, I may have something to write. Festus has nothing to write, it seems. He's already declared Paul innocent, so what does he have to write concerning this prisoner that's headed to Rome? He's relying... ...on the counsel of Agrippa to help him write the report. Verse 27. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner... ...and not to specify the charges against him. Listen, Festus knows very well the charges against Paul. He knows them. That's not the mystery here. See, Festus heard the charges. He no doubt read the file left behind by Felix. He probably had access to Lysias' letter... He knew the charges were against Jewish law, against the temple, and against disturbing the peace, against Caesar. Those are the main charges. For Festus, his inner turmoil, his inner turmoil is such that he is concerned, so concerned about what's happening. He's he's broken inside because he knows that Paul... Is innocent. You know, and, and maybe it's something for you to ask of yourself. Have you ever been in a situation and it's this inner turmoil and you're trying to dig yourself out of a hole, out of a situation, and if you can just do this over here, it might help me get out of the hole. But you find that it's hard to get out of the hole because on the inside, you're, it's, just be, it's eating you on the inside because you know that what you're trying to do is opposite and against the truth. Festus knows Paul is innocent. He knows that. It's interesting as we look at the text and we're able to see from the text when he says, I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. It seems unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. 
Festus is being confronted here with a truth. And he is fearful. Even though on the outside he's not showing it, he's quite fearful. And here's this grand auditorium, and you've got these grand players up here in the stage. And right here, front and center, you've got Paul. You know, the council that's submitted, the council that is sought out, reminds me in many ways of this particular coupon. And and I'm hoping that's one of the things we take away from today is who we need to turn to when we find ourselves in situations, particular situations that are going south. But I think what we can see in the scripture is that we're to turn to the Lord in all things, aren't we? Not just when things go bad, not just when things happen that we don't like. We are to come to him. We are to learn from him. We are to be counseled by him in all of our situations. And this coupon is good to all generations. I believe as we look at the text and we're able to see here in Festus and we see in Agrippa, Paul really at this point from 13 to 27, Paul is a a passive character, if you will, in the text, in this scope of text. Paul has been brought in. Paul hasn't even spoken as of yet. He will, beginning in chapter 26. The main players are Festus and Agrippa. And Festus is turning to one that he thinks is going to provide him the answers. Have you ever been in a situation where you need counsel and you have gone to someone and maybe you didn't know it up front, but you come to find out on the back end of it? I was seeking counsel from someone I probably shouldn't have. (laughs) Or maybe you think that this person, because they are a certain skill set, they have a certain expertise in a certain area, that you're going to go to them because they are labeled as having a certain expertise in that area. And you go to them for counsel first. See, I think it's easy, going back to the question we asked right at the beginning of the message. Where do you turn? Where do you go first? We we know the answer. But yet operationally, so often we go this way. We go off into the weeds somewhere. And then we get under the weeds and and we find ourselves then trying to whack our way out of the weeds because we have made a decision to go seek counsel somewhere else first. Remember King Asa, 2 Chronicles chapter 14? There's quite a contrast between 14 and 16 in 2 Chronicles. In chapter 14, he's confronted with a million-man army. Remember the Ethiopians? They're coming, they're going to attack. And Asa sees it and he goes to the Lord and he says, essentially, Lord, help. We're resting upon you here. We, We can't do this without you. The first thing he does, he takes it to the Lord. Two chapters later, Basha, king of Israel, is ready to attack Judah. And Asa's first decision is to call upon Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. Hey, will you come and take care of him so that he can... A few verses later then, there's this... Seer, this prophet named Hanani who comes on the scene, remember? And he essentially chastises Asa. Asa, was it a small thing in the eyes of the Lord for him to take care of those million men from Ethiopia? He's reminding him, Asa, it wasn't that long ago when the Lord showed himself strong on your behalf. Why? Because you relied upon the Lord. You sought his counsel first. And now because you have chosen not to seek his counsel, you're going to have wars the rest of your life. And there began the spiral for King Asa. If you remember Asa's life, the last five, six years of his life just kept going down, down, down. You 
young people today as we look at this text. We live amidst a generation. A generation that is referred to as, a, as an I generation. And you have opportunity. As I read this text, you have opportunity to be able to stand and testify... Just as Paul did. As I'm reading this text this week, the one picture that just keeps coming as I'm reading the text is this picture of Paul. And he's standing right here in the middle of everyone. And you know who's on trial? I mean, we might say, Paul, yeah, he's on trial. Yes, yes. But do you know, really know who's on trial? Representative of the person of Paul standing in the auditorium. Christianity, Christianity is on trial. Christ himself is on trial. You see, because what we end up finding out is, and Festus even tells Agrippa this, these charges really were about questions concerning their own law. And we keep looking at what these questions were surrounding. These questions were surrounding this man, it says in verse 19, a certain Jesus who had died... Whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, Festus didn't know. See, here's the thing Festus was ignorant. He just he didn't know. But it also seems that Festus really didn't even want to know what he didn't know. He didn't really care. Jesus, this certain man, Jesus. And then you have Agrippa, who supposedly does know. He supposedly has some understanding of the way. And yet he doesn't seem too concerned about it either. Which, by the way, much more dangerous results for Agrippa. Agrippa does know. And yet he still continues to push aside. As we see at the end of Acts 26, we'll get to this next week. Agrippa is not a Christian. I mean, you read those words at the end when they're debating just a little bit and Agrippa says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. You see, young people, you have opportunity. And I think about you in this context. I think about you put yourself in that same situation where Paul is standing in the auditorium and in the world today, there are all kinds of people, all kinds of things around you today that are making their declarations, taking their stands against Christ, against Christianity. And you are a spokesperson for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, the key elements in the text are Jesus and the resurrection. Paul doesn't dispute or doubt the fact that Jesus died. No, that's not part of it. Because see, they're arguing that he died. Paul doesn't dispute that he died. He knows he died. Paul's saying he's alive. So what's the main point? Paul is saying... Our Lord Jesus has been raised to life. Resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. This man Jesus stands at the center point of all the questions. And listen, he doesn't just stand at the center point of the questions here in Acts 25 and 26. Does he not stand at the center point of all questions? Because you see, if you don't know this man Jesus... you're going to act and operate much differently than you do if you do know this man, Jesus. Jesus divides. That's what he says in the Gospels. I didn't come to make everybody happy and flowery and we're going to live on a mountaintop and everything's going to be wonderful. You're going to have a lot of money and you're, going to, you're always going to be healthy. No. That's not, that's not the Jesus I read about in the Gospels. And I even read Paul. And we see Paul's life live this out. That the godly are going to go through suffering. That's what he says in 2 Timothy. It's going to happen. And Paul's life is a great example of it happening. It's exactly what happened. So young people, I want you to picture yourself standing right there in the middle of that auditorium. And you have opportunity to speak. Are you going to be ready? 
are you going to know what to share? See, Festus is zoomed in on what to write. And Agrippa seems to see this as some sideshow, some novelty. I was liking it to this, you know, walking downtown and you might see a guy with a little monkey on his shoulder. And, oh, isn't that neat? Oh, that's pretty neat. Agrippa, I think that's the way he kind of treats this whole thing. This is, this all, this is really neat. Bring the man out here. Let me, let me see him. Neither one of them are prepared for what Paul is about to testify. Festus is plain ignorant of Christ and simply wants to get this prisoner cleared off of his agenda. Agrippa is not ignorant of Christ. He's knowledgeable of the way. Festus doesn't know, doesn't seem to care to know. Agrippa does know, and yet never connects what Paul has to say as being needful for his own life. Church, that's tragic. When you don't connect... What you need to know, come to me, learn from me, be counseled by me, good to all generations. The Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the people who are ruling and making the primary decisions in Acts 25 and 26 are people without the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives. Do we see this? As I consider this, I'm reminded of the myriad of judgments that are handed down today by people who are far from the Lord. See, Christianity remains on trial. Christ is still being maligned and he's still being pushed to the side. And like Paul, many of us are truly the minority against the great pageantry that's surrounding us. We need not fear standing in the arena. We need not tremble being outnumbered. Just ask Gideon. Ask Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Ask Daniel. Ask Hezekiah. Ask Moses. Ask Jeremiah. Ask Elisha. Remember he was speaking to his servant who was seeing oh, all these people around him on the other side. Oh no, here, it's going to happen. Disaster. And Elisha says, do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. We may be outnumbered. We may be told that Christianity is not acceptable here. We may find ourselves on the receiving end of intimidating voices, power struggles, leverage brokers that are out to squash anything that has the look, the taste, the feel of Christ. We may ourselves experience this great pomp around us, declaring that bad is now good, that wicked is now Righteous. That abnormal is now the normal. It's important for us to be able to see and to be able to know that as we look at this and as we're able to see what Agrippa and what Festus are doing, we can be assured, we can be assured that our Lord Jesus is with us. And young people, you're growing up in a generation that's largely disinterested in this man, Jesus Christ. Largely disinterested in this man, Jesus Christ. You're living in the days, as I mentioned earlier, this I generation where it's not uncommon to define Jesus however I want to define him. Isaiah 8.20 says, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. What does this word have to say? What counsel does this word have to give? And whose counseling are you listening to today? Do not be led astray. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Those aren't my words. Those are in the scripture. Be willing to exchange your temporary pleasures for something you can eternally stand on. Be willing to enter into the auditorium and declare your testimony of the wonderful change that's been made in your heart since Jesus came into your life. Be willing to see that whatever may come, you can stand there even by yourself and know, just as Paul knew, that the Lord stood with me in my defense.
And that's so comforting to know that the Lord is with you. See, Festus and Agrippa, they have the trappings and they have the titles and they both sit in positions of authority. Yet both are lost. Both are without hope. Both are without Christ. And they have, according to the scriptures, received their reward in full. And you know, the odd thing about the Christian life, church, is that it always points forward. It always points ahead to a reward yet to come. And oh yes, there are recipients here of some good things. We can all say amen to some good things the Lord has provided for us here. But the heavenly rewards are yet to come, and we eagerly wait for them, being in Christ. And yet Jesus says that as a Christian, we are to store up treasures where? In heaven, right? In heaven while operating here on earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for our light affliction, Paul says, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Come to me, learn from me, be counseled by me, says the Lord. By the way, the coupon came not from my own thinking, but came from Matthew chapter 11, 28 and 29, and also came from Psalm 33, verse 11. Okay? I'm submitting you to you this morning a coupon to take hold of, to access each day. And the Lord himself will grant you a mouth and a wisdom to speak. He'll enable you to stand when you don't think it's possible. And he'll uphold you with his righteous right hand. You see, the Lord... Jesus desires for each one of you to come unto him, to learn from him, and to be continually, day by day, counseled by him. Psalm 46 verse 1 says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present, a very present help in trouble. When you find yourself feeling chained and on trial, For the name of Jesus, wherever you might be, whatever context you might be in, remember whose counsel you need and know with certainty where you need to turn. For the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Let's pray. Father, I pray through the hearing of your word today that there's at least one person here who has been convicted by your Holy Spirit to come unto you, to learn from you, and to be counseled by you from this day forward. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we might see you, that we might believe and receive your son Jesus, foregoing the pleasures of this world for a daily walk by faith, trusting not in ourselves, but in who you are, our refuge, our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Father, we thank you this morning for being our sure defense and shield, our rock and our hope of eternal salvation. And it's in the name of our resurrected Lord and Savior that I pray these things. Amen.